So now if you have your Bible from the, the psalm reading, keep it out and turn to the book of Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible out, grab one. Uh, we have some out on the table. The passage that we're going to be looking at is also printed in your bulletin, the, the order of worship. Um, or you can always find the, the passage in, in, on a digital device as well. But I would encourage you to have it open in front of you as we walk through these verses together. Remember where we are in the book of Ephesians. Uh, this is a letter by the Apostle Paul. He's writing to Christians in the region of Ephesus on the western coast of what is modern-day Turkey. And in verses 3 through 14, he had this amazing benediction, amazing praise to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then in verse 15 to the end of chapter 1, we, we looked at a long prayer of thanksgiving where Paul is giving thanks for the Christians, but then he is specifically praying for them to know what is their hope, what is their inheritance, and to know the power of God that was displayed in the, the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and present reigning of Christ in heaven for believers displayed in the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And in some ways, chapter 2, which we're going into today, is the beginning of the, the meat of Ephesians, that chapter 1 is, is largely introduction to the main argument. And so again, I'll read chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. And you were dead... In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we need to know the immeasurable riches of your grace and kindness toward us. And so today we pray for, for grace to, to see Christ, grace to, to understand your word, uh, grace to go out from this building loving you more, trusting you more. So we pray that you would strengthen us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I think that we all love before and after pictures. I've seen people renovate their kitchens where they take the picture before, right before they tear everything apart, and it's old, it's outdated, it it's, doesn't look very good, and then they, they renovate the space, they make it look beautiful, fresh, new, and then they take another picture and they, they post it on Facebook. You see the before and after. It's the same thing for weight loss programs or exercise programs. Sometimes people will take a before picture and then an after picture. They'll put the two pictures together to show what has happened in their life, the change that has taken place. And that's what we see here in our text, that we see a before picture and an after picture. We see who we were before God made us alive in Christ, and then we see who we are after he made us alive in Christ. And so we're going to, to look at the before and the after. So let's start with the before picture who we were before Christ made us alive, before the Lord made us alive together with Christ. Look at the description there in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So it doesn't get any worse. The, the before picture is not a spiritually sick person. The before picture is not a, a spiritually overweight person. <laughs> that the, the picture before is a spiritually dead person. He's speaking to the Ephesians and he says, you were dead, dead as a doornail. If you remember Charles Dickens, right? Dead as a doornail. That was our condition by nature. And you know that, that dead people don't make particularly good choices. They don't make particularly good decisions in life. That you're, you're dead. And it's the same thing for us spiritually before Christ saved us. That we couldn't make good choices. We couldn't choose God. We were completely opposed to the things of God by nature. Fallen in Adam, dead in our trespasses and sins. But then look at how he adds to the picture. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then he says, following the course of this world. So we're dead, but then we were also enslaved. And he says that we were enslaved to the course of this world to a worldly way of thinking, to a worldly way of living. And there's a great word for that in German, the word zeitgeist. We, do not, we don't have that words that good in English. Uh, but the word zeitgeist has to do with the, the spirit of the age, the, the mores of our time, the way of thinking of our cultural moment. And what Paul is saying is that when we were dead, we were enslaved to the zeitgeist. We were enslaved to the spirit of our age, that we thought like our culture thinks. We, we thought 
like the world around us, our view of right and wrong, our view of meaning, our view of purpose, everything in our life was informed, was enslaved to the spirit of this age. But then the slavery continues. Look again at verse 1. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And then he adds, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Paul is saying that before we were part of the kingdom of God, we were in a different kingdom. We had a a different citizenship in the domain of darkness, that we were citizens of Satan living in the city of destruction. He says that we were following the, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air, this this description of Satan, the power of darkness, the great deceiver of the world, the great enemy of Christ's church who is like a, a roaring lion who wanders around seeking something to devour. We belonged to him by nature. Then look what else he adds, that we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And so you see the three great enemies that were enslaved by nature to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Of course, Paul's order is he, he first mentions the world, then he mentions the devil, and then he mentions the flesh here in verse 3. And notice what he says about the flesh, that we, were, we followed the, the desires of the body and the mind, that it was partly our, our bodily passions, our, our desires, our feelings that drove everything, but it wasn't just our emotions, but it was also our mind. It's what theologians call the the noetic effects of sin, that that sin affects both our heart, our feelings, our emotions, our desires, but it also affects our mind, our way of thinking, that we rationalize our sin. We, we, We sin and we want to sin, heart and mind. And that's why Paul says that we were, by nature, children of wrath. That means children destined for wrath. Children under the wrath of God by nature. That was our identity before Christ. Children of wrath. And we weren't that different from the world around us, he says, like the rest of mankind. We weren't better by nature. We weren't worse by nature. We were the same, that we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the before picture that Paul gives us. But at that point, we may have objections running in our head. And I think that the objection comes from the same root. Because maybe you're a believer here today, and you say, I came to Christ at the age of seven, 
And are you telling me that when I was six, that I was dead in my trespasses and sins, that I was following the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, that I was a child of wrath, following the flesh and the desires of the body and the the mind. I wasn't that bad when I was six. (laughs) Or maybe you were. (laughs) Uh, Or maybe you're at the place where you say, I haven't repented and trusted in Christ for salvation, but I'm not this bad. I'm not enslaved to Satan. I'm not dead, unable to do any spiritual good apart from the grace of God. I am an independent thinker. I accomplish a lot of good in the world. I am a good person. Or maybe we even think this about our neighbors, our unbelieving friends and family. And we say, yes, it would be good if they trusted in Christ for salvation. But they're not this bad. This is an exaggeration. It feels like one of those commercials where they're trying to sell the product, and when they do the before picture, it's in black and white, and they're, they're frowning, seems sad, and then everything goes into color, and you know that it's not accurate. It's a caricature. It's not true. And we feel that sometimes when we come to a text like this. Really, Paul, this is who we all were by nature. Is that really true? And I think that the key is found in what Paul says. Notice that in verse 1 and 2, he's speaking in the second person plural. He's addressing the church in Ephesus. He's saying, this is who you were. But then to avoid confusion, in verse 3, he says, among whom we all once lived. Every single believer fits into the before picture of chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. This was your story. This is my story, according to the Apostle Paul. And so, yes, on the surface, you could look at a nice, successful college student, and then you could look at a drug dealer on the streets of Kensington, and you would say, one needs the grace of God more than the other. One fits the description here in the text more than another. But according to the Bible, our natural spiritual condition is the same. No matter who we are, no matter where we came from. And the best way you can think of it is something like a, a spiritual disease. That we, we, we have a spiritual disease. And imagine two people, they have the same disease. And without treatment, they're both going to be dead in three weeks. The only difference between the two people is that one is asymptomatic. One has no symptoms, but yet the disease is working in the body. And so the person feels healthy. The person is preparing to run a marathon. The person has no desire to seek out treatment, to seek a physician, but yet he is fatally sick. And then there's another person with the same disease But he's symptomatic. He feels terrible. He feels sick. And even the effects of the disease are visible on the outside, that every single person would look at that individual and say, yes, this person is sick. This person needs help. This person needs treatment. 
And you say, in that case, who is in the greatest danger? In one sense, they're in the same danger because they both have the same disease, and without treatment, they're both going to face the same end. But in a way, the person who is asymptomatic is in far more danger because that person doesn't see the disease that is at work within them. They don't see the depth of their problem, and therefore they're not seeking the help and the care that is necessary. And it's the same for us spiritually, that we come into the world dead in our trespasses and sins. We come into the world enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. We come into the world children of wrath by nature like the rest of mankind. And that, yes, some have shown more symptoms of that condition openly in the world, but yet all of us have the the fatal disease of being born in Adam, being born with the sin of Adam counted to us with sin that we actually carry out in our day-to-day actions in rebellion against God and our failure to love others around us. That is our true spiritual condition. And so you could think about people often in our area, places like Garnet Valley, where people are successful on the outside. They are nice people. They have good jobs. They are good neighbors. They're engaged in the community, but yet they don't know the Lord. You look at others. I I was talking about the the Kensington example, but when Jonathan and Chris Batten go to Kensington to, to provide bananas and water bottles for the addicts on the street, those people know that they have a problem to one degree or another. But yet you go to the streets of Kensington and you can have spiritual conversations with people because they know they have a problem, that the symptoms of the dead, sinful, fallen nature have expressed themselves in a very visible way. But then you go to a suburban Garnet Valley person who is successful and the person is often not willing to talk about spiritual things because they say, I'm a good person, I'm fine, there's nothing wrong with me. But yet the scripture tells us that all the goodness that comes from us before we are a believer is from the common grace of God. That there there is what the theologians call special grace, saving grace, that brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life, but there is also common grace. And that means that by the grace of God, apart from uh, we're not as bad as we could be, that if, if God withdrew his grace from the unbeliever, we would be as bad as we could possibly be all the time. But God is so gracious, even to people who don't know him, even to people who are dead in their trespasses and sins, to give them the common grace to be good neighbors, to to love their families well, to contribute to, to science and to art and to culture. But that goodness is not coming from themselves, ultimately. It's not some sort of holdout of spiritual life within them, but it's actually the, the grace of God, the common grace of God flowing through them, grace that is meant to bring them to a place of repentance to a place of faith, 
though they may not acknowledge the source of that. And so as you think about yourself before you came to know the Lord, maybe you weren't as bad as others, but that wasn't because of goodness that arose within yourself. That was the grace of God at work in your life, even before you knew anything about Christ or knew anything about God. And you chose God by grace alone, that it was God's goodness because you were dead in your trespasses and sins, dead as a doornail, no spiritual life, no spiritual heartbeat, taking the grace of God to act in your heart. And I think that this is especially important as we engage with our neighbors, our unbelieving neighbors, because this guards us on two fronts. It guards us against acting like we're naturally better than our neighbor. Well, I'm a good person who was raised in a good religious home. Say, no, that is the grace of God, that, that you enter the world dead, dead as anyone, slave to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Your natural condition is no different from your neighbor. But then at the same time, what we see here in the text reminds us that we all need Christ. We're so tempted to say, well, this neighbor needs Christ because they're struggling with addiction or their life is falling apart in some way. And so I'll offer the gospel to them because they really need it. But my nice, kind neighbor who doesn't know the Lord, if we're honest, we're not sure they really need Christ. That on some level, I think that all of us are closet, practical universalists that on some level we believe that people don't need Jesus. Maybe we don't ourselves don't need Jesus. Maybe we're a little bit better than we thought we were. Maybe our neighbor isn't that bad. And so it's only for those on the streets of Kensington who actually need the grace of God. And then the rest of us can survive based on our inherent goodness and our work ethic. But this reminds us that no, it is the grace of God that we offer to our friends and families and neighbor. And it's, an, it's a grace that everyone needs because we all come into the world dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. It's enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So that's your before picture. That's my before picture. But then look at the after picture. This is who you were. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And so at verse 4, you see those two words, but gone. And this is not original to me, but I've heard so many sermons where people point out that those are the, the two best words in the Bible. He doesn't say, but abandon all hope, or but it's not your fault, or but you can try harder and become better. He says, but God. But God, being rich 
and mercy, that he is a God with deep, profound mercy for his people. And he said, it says, with the great love with which he loved us. And just to make it clear, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That God's love for us is not dependent on something that's coming from us. God didn't see a shimmer of spiritual life within you and say, I love that shimmer of spiritual goodness within you, and therefore I'm going to act to save you. But he's saying that, no, when we were dead, when we could offer nothing to God at all except our sin, God loved us, being rich in mercy. And I love the parenthetical statement. He breaks the, the grammar of the sentence and just says, by grace you have been saved. That, that he, he just wants to make sure that we understand it is 100% from grace, even though he's going to get to grace down in verse 8 that we'll look at next week. But he wants to be perfectly clear. This is completely and utterly of grace. It's a gift from beginning to end, from the mercy of God. But then look in your Bible at what this God, who's rich in mercy, the great love with which he loved us, look at what he does. Verse 5, he made us alive together with Christ. That's what we talked about last week, this spiritual resurrection, bringing us from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that unless you are born again, you can't see the kingdom of God, that, that he gives us spiritual birth, spiritual new life, raising us from the dead spiritually. And then look at what he says, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now look at the, the tense of those verbs in your Bible. Does it say that he will raise you up with him and will seat you with him in the heavenly places? Is it a, a future reality? Is it a present reality? Is he saying that he is raising us up, is seating us? Well, notice that, that it's stated as a, as a completed action. It's here in the past tense that it's being viewed as done from beginning to end, that he has raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this is true for you already if you are a believer. And notice the symmetry with chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 20, it says that God showed his power when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And so you see the symmetry from the end of chapter 1 to chapter 2, where he's saying, Jesus has been raised from the dead. Chapter 2, you have been raised up with him. Chapter 1, Jesus has been seated in the heavenly places. Chapter 2, you have been seated in the heavenly places in Christ, with Christ. Present reality 
for every believer. But I think that as believers, we get what I often think of as a a spiritual body image issue. That maybe some of you have, have struggled with body image in your life. I know for my wife, Grace, who went to dance school, that that many of her friends in the dance world struggle with eating disorders, with body image issues. It's, It's very, very common in the dance world. And that often what happens is is somebody, in reality, on the outside, they're they're athletes, they're, they're dancers. No one would consider them overweight or unhealthy in any way. But yet, in their image of themselves, they think of themselves as overweight or something wrong with them physically. And so they they mistreat their bodies or neglect their bodies, that they, they don't care for their bodies in the way that they should care for their bodies. And, and when somebody's struggling in that place, you wish that they could see themselves as they actually are, that they could see themselves as others see them, that they could see themselves as God sees them, to know where their identity is rooted, and that it's the same for us spiritually. If we are in Christ, if we have repented of our sins and trusted in Christ for salvation, our identity is verse 4 through verse 7 that we are alive, we have been raised up with Christ, we have been seated with Christ. That is our after picture. That is the truthful picture of who we are in Christ. But then even for the believer, psychologically, in our minds or emotionally, we feel like verse 1 to 3, that we feel dead sometimes, or we feel like we're just enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Or we feel like children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And we see no difference. But when we have this this truthful picture from God, we see who we are in Christ. We see his rich mercy. We see the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead. We know the the work that he has wrought in us, bringing us from spiritual life to death to spiritual life. And then we see what our true identity is, that it's it's Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Christ, that that he is ultimately my identity, that my identity is not some former pattern of sin. My identity is not some even current struggle of sin, that the more that we see ourselves in Christ, the more that begins to, to whittle away the, the sin patterns, the way of thinking that, that we see the, the work of God in our lives, in our heart, all by grace. What it says in verse 10, that we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, when we walk in who we are by grace, in Christ, through faith. Then as we, as we wrap up today, I want to point out to you the, the purpose statement behind everything that we've been saying. So look in your Bible at verse 7, the final verse of our text. He says, so that 
in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so, yes, there is a present reality There's of who we are in Christ. There is the former reality of who we were by nature. But then here he brings the, the future reality, that, that, that God is at work and he, he's working life in us so that in the coming ages, in the age to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness, that it's going to be ever-expanding, ever-deepening, ever-overflowing love and grace of God for all eternity through Christ in the gospel that is ours. And that's what we hold on to as our central identity. What is the snapshot? Who snapshot? Who are you today? That if you have repented and trusted in Christ, this is who you are by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for who we are in Christ. We recognize that it is possible to to still be outside of Christ and to to be to not know, to think that we're believers, to, to falsely profess faith, Lord. And if we if we are in that condition, if we are in the place of, of thinking of ourselves as believers while still being dead, uh, we pray for the, the grace to see that condition, the grace to see Christ. We pray for spiritual resurrection for for anyone here who has not been born again who's not been brought to new spiritual life to experience that today to experience your grace at work because we know that that faith is not something that we can well up within ourselves that it is a gift of your grace not the result of works so that no one may boast and so father we pray for that but for those of the, the those of us who are alive in Christ, who have faith, who have put our trust, turning from sin to Christ. We pray that you would forgive us for our spiritual body image issues, that that we are united to Christ. Our former struggles, our former sins is not what defines us. Our feeling of of ourselves is not what defines us, that our, our identity is Christ, his life, his resurrection. And so, Father, I pray that for every believer here that they can view themselves as raised up with Christ, that we would see ourselves as seated with Christ, that we would know that our life is hidden with God, hidden with you in Christ, and that when Christ is revealed, we will be revealed with him, that we have treasure in jars of clay to show that the immeasurable power belongs to you, that we are, we are weak, that you could be strong. And so, Father, we pray for us to know you as the God of love and grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.